Wildfires, hurricanes, war, pandemic, civil unrest, in a world roiling with multiple disasters, is it possible to avoid another crisis? The more investment one makes in being ready, the less the devastation, and therefore the chattering classes or whoever uh, will say, why did you worry so much? Why did you invest so much? It really wasn't as bad. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. In today's show, our host and Rain founder, David Lawrence, gets a disaster management briefing. Well, sort of. In fact, he discusses the disaster cycle and how to prepare with author, teacher, and crisis response expert, Juliet Kayim. Her new book, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters, lays the groundwork for a new approach to dealing with disaster. Juliet, first, a great privilege and honor to be able to speak with you today, and congratulations on... um, not only writing this book, uh, but the reception that it's Thank getting. You. The devil never sleeps. So, thanks. For I really appreciate it. Thank us. you. Yes, it's been. Uh, and unfortunately, maybe the truth of the title uh, sort of you know makes it an, an evergreen. But I'm glad that the message is getting out. And thank you for this opportunity. Well, I'll just mention together with some colleagues of mine a number of years ago, and it's unfortunately timely in light of the events over the weekend with Buffalo uh, after. The mass shooting in Vegas, we wrote an article for the University of Pennsylvania's uh, Wharton School's Business Journal talking about precisely this. But I'd like to just sort of launch in for, for our audience. Um, you know, people write books for many reasons. And I, I thought the reasons that motivated you were particularly unique and important in, in terms of understanding what you're trying to accomplish. So maybe we'll just start there. Well, thanks. Uh, and, and yeah, they, you know, in some ways, everyone has the book they've been writing in their head for 30 years. So it, I feel, um, you know, is, was there a moment in which I, I, um, I realized it and the story I, I tell in the book and in the introduction of the book about, um, about preparing to live in ages, right, in which there's just constant disaster sort of came to me because of the pandemic, although the book explores all kinds of disasters. And that's because like everyone else, I was home with the kids. I, uh, But oddly, uh, just given the nature of my field as also an advisor uh, to, to public entities and private uh, corporations, I uh, was quite busy. And I uh, found myself at home. One kid came home from college, two were in high school. Uh, uh, long story short, there was an accident uh, in the bathroom uh, that exposes a crawl space on the third floor. We live in a rambling old house in in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, built in 1840. We had always been told that crawl space was uh, that had been closed off by a closet was just you know it was a very very small space. It ended up being longer and wider than we than we knew. But the, when we bought the house, they had just sort of closed it off, and and you couldn't really reach it from. Uh, the closets on the third floor in this area, I guess I would call it, there was a picture of a, of a man, uh, uh, 
very, very sort of wise and distinguished looking man as people are were in those in those uh, ages and dated about 1910. Uh, I um, put the picture on Twitter. I am very big on Twitter. And I know that there's lots of smart people that want to be helpful. Fast forward that by the next morning, I learn about the McHugh family who lived in my home from 1917 to 1919. Uh, this is a picture of one of the members of the McHugh family. All the Twitter genealogists figured this out. The McHughes were a pretty well-known family here uh, and uh, in Cambridge, uh, and they had a son who had passed away when he was young, and they had a daughter. Uh, we learned that that daughter had passed away in the home, in the third floor, uh, that this ended up being a uh, what they call sort of a, a death room or a sick room. It's where they put people to either die um, or to give birth, ironically. Uh, she was 19 at the time, and she died in the third wave of the pandemic of the of the Spanish flu, the 1917 flu that uh, that we still to this day don't know how many millions it killed. Uh, the oddness of that moment of sort of discovering that in my home this had happened, and the um, irony and weirdness and even discomfort of it, given my kids, I was trying to protect my kids at the time, sort of um, led me to, I think in many ways, the universal and recurring nature of disasters. And the goal of the book is to get us out of thinking that there's like a day of rainbows and unicorns. The devil never sleeps. It's a, we live in an age in which and any disasters could happen. We certainly know that now. Uh, and we can get better uh, learning to fail safer. And what I mean by that is if we anticipate uh, that moment, what I call in the book, the boom, uh, uh, that we're on the right side of the boom, right? The, not the left side. We can't stop all bad things from happening. Uh, there are eight basic lessons to, uh, um, that I provide to readers and leaders of all types about uh, failing safer and, and judging success by whether we made uh, 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 made the consequences of that disaster less bad. And I know that's a funny standard, but less bad ends up being pretty good uh, if you uh, experience the kinds of disruptions that we're seeing around the world. To translate that uh, a little bit, because people talk about business continuity, but what you're really focusing on is um, not a question of predicting a specific event or predicting the timing, but making sure that there is sufficient resiliency around events that we kind of know are out there and may occur, and being in a position to, I'll call it, to survive, move on, and maybe even thrive as a result of mm -hmm. it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we're, as I say, in disaster management, we're simple people. The world is divided up into, as I was describing before, left of boom and right of boom, right? And the boom, as I said, is I'm agnostic, right? Is cyber attack, pandemic, terror attack, whatever we just saw this horror in Buffalo. Uh, and are there things that we can do to, to better uh, prepare for for what we know will happen. Uh, we tend to view success as the bad thing didn't happen and, and failure as, well, the bad thing happened. And what I show in the book by telling stories, that's all the book is, is just telling uh, stories of disasters from, you know, the Trojan War to the, you know, to the tsunamis of the early 19th century to, to Surfside. I get all the way to Surfside, Florida is to look at those disasters in a different way. We always look at what went wrong. 
And I wanted to also tell stories about what went right, because if we can focus on what went right, then we'll invest in that uh, and, and, and try to minimize the harm the next time and the next time and the next time. So it's a book that is very grounded in the here and now. And I make clear that like everyone else, I hope we could stop bad things from happening. Uh, and, uh, like everyone else, I hope we can build for a more resilient society that didn't suffer consequences. But right now, at this moment, when the devil could arrive uh, any time, there are also lots of investments we can make uh, 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 for ourselves, for our home, for our institutions. And yet, and I want to delve into this uh, yeah. simply because you have a somewhat biblical reference to the devil. Yeah. Um, let me quote from the book of Ecclesiastes, which in in essence uh, that it's all it's all been, it's all been done before yeah there's that's, nothing new under the sun that's exactly i mean in some weird way i don't know this, it makes me sort of feel better in a weird way i mean i know because we have this tendency to think like never before and what you know and and also never again but i think the if if we can become familiar with disasters right not view them as a surprise uh, then, uh, then we, then we, we can assert agency over them, and that's a real strong sentiment in my book that we are not passive recipients of what the the devil is going to bring us. I, I, the the opening pages of the book uh, delve into what does the word disaster mean? I've been in this field forever, and I had never looked it up. Right, dis means not or or sort of bad, and aster is of the stars, and and we used to think, or we we still think, some I guess uh, that that this disaster is just a misalignment of the stars, and it puts humankind in a very passive. Role. Well, what if we actually took ownership over that surprise and uh, and then began to invest in in minimizing the the consequences of it? Not to excuse it, not to not to say we shouldn't fix all the bad things that are happening in our society, but merely at that moment uh, we we can do better. To your biblical reference, uh, you'll remember that the book title is only partial of a quote that I uh, heard. Uh, said to me from a woman in Joplin, Missouri, uh, in 2011, uh, Joplin, uh, Missouri suffered uh, the consequences of a tornado that just swept through a single street in this small town, killing over 100 people. So the, 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 the devastation was was beyond everyone lost someone. And uh, and this woman, Jane Cage, is responsible for helping to rebuild Joplin and prepare it for the next time. And she was optimistic and very tactical and and very faith-based. Her, her religion was not one of sort of passive acceptance of what the God, what God will bring, right? She was, and she says to me, I said, how are you like that? That seems like a good attitude to have. And she says, uh, I'm from Missouri. I live in Joplin. There will be more tornadoes. The devil never sleeps, but he only wins if we don't do better next time. And it was a real sentiment about, I mean, it really did sort of change the way I think about success and failure uh, in a field that I have chosen. So let me build on, because uh, I remember the quote, and uh, Missouri, um, the show me state. So let me sort of digress a little bit, because I think part of, and what I found valuable um, about this notion of ownership, and we can own it, and we need to continue to learn the lessons of not only what didn't work, but what did work. And um, I don't know whether you know um, Dr. Erwin Redliner. Yes, of course, yes. Okay, who has been on 
podcasts and conferences. But he began his career studying uh, an earthquake uh, as a pediatrician. You know, he, he you know his career has been obviously a very complex one. But he studied uh, basically an earthquake in um, Latin America, and so the resiliency and what worked and what didn't. And part of what Erwin's um, level of frustration, and I don't know whether you felt it yet, but I sort of, I, 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 I thought this was in part the reason for your book because people still didn't get it yet. They get that there could be lessons and we can learn from what has worked and what hasn't worked and let, it, let us just accept these, these so-called phenomenons or once-in-a-lifetime events or once-in-a-hundred-year events as not being that. And we need to, there are things that we can do and things that we can own. But part of Irwin's um, frustration, if I can characterize it as such, is that people are not necessarily paying attention. And very often those people are people who are in positions of political leadership, uh, etc. But we have spent a lot of time talking to experts and, and sharing the lessons learned around the pandemic. And, and so I want to pose something uh, to you because your position at Homeland Security, the pandemic was not an event that should have surprised anyone because for decades, and I mean multiple decades, leadership out of the intelligence community, national security community, medical, clinical community, portrayed this not as a remote event. It was going. To, it was going to happen, and I'll, I'll just cite a couple of examples. There was a doctor who worked in the Bloomberg administration who produced a two hundred, I think, and twenty-page report that identified the pandemic as a real risk, high consequence. Federal government would not be ready for it. New York, because of its density, its verticality, the diversity of its population, diversity of its tourist base, would be particularly susceptible. And they began to prepare. It's almost like a child's fable, Juliet, right, of the grasshopper. And, and they, they began to follow the recommendations of the report and acquire equipment and identify the expertise. And then the event didn't happen right away, and I'm, I'm not pointing fingers here, but subsequent administrations, it was abandoned, okay, and the equipment was sold off. But also the president's own Council of Economic Advisors published a report that went up in September of 2019 on America's lack of preparedness for a pandemic and urging that this was something we had to prepare for. And again, I'm not pointing fingers, it's just, uh, you know, again, your effort to own something, own this. And so I, I, I'd love to get your views because I think there's something endemic to human nature about preparedness, to the current construct of our political institutions. And I, one of the expressions, and, and then I'm going to give you the floor, that drives me nuts, that comes out of Washington is a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And I actually have a feeling, a different thing, is a crisis is a, a terrible thing to create or not to be prepared for. Right, exactly. That is exactly right. Because you're, it is, that, I never thought about that, that that actually has a defeatist tone to it. It's like, oh, well, this thing happened. Now let's learn when, when actually there's a lot we could do. 
Well, there's there's two things in response to that. I mean, the first is is uh, uh, the challenge of what I describe in the book called the preparedness paradox. It's a real phenomenon. The preparedness paradox just it, it is exactly as we say, which is that the more investment one investments one makes in prepare being being ready, the less the devastation, and therefore the chattering classes or the politics or who whoever uh, will say, "Why did you worry so much? Why did you invest so much? It really wasn't as bad as." as we, as you, as you said, right? So part of what we have to do is over, overcome that paradox. So this, the best example, the preparedness paradox is, is Y2K when the computers uh, were not programmed originally, our, our new world of computers in the 1980s and 1990s were not programmed for the inevitability uh, that we would hit a new century. And so there was a considerable concern about what would happen if they would actually turn to the year 0000, which would not align with anything. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, January 1st came around and there was some blips, but nothing major. So then the narrative of Y2K is why did everyone freak out? Nothing happened. Well, the story people are forgetting is the billions of dollars and investments and preparation that was put into, uh, uh, or leading into, uh, the, 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 the year 2000, which got everybody prepared for what what without that preparation would have been absolutely devastating from air travel to banking whatever else so it's so so we think of it oh it's such a you know everyone overreacted no i mean it was actually it was that preparation another example that i use because this is exactly your point it's like we need to tell the good news stories of these disasters because once again, the public and politics even tend to be binary. You know, we always say, why did that happen? Or never again. Those are, those are hard promises to keep. You know, this, this is a world that's very complicated and we live by those complications, right? I mean, we, we're on airplanes, we travel, we like to be on the internet. All of those are vulnerabilities that we wouldn't give up for uh, anything in the world. And, um, and so the other example I, 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 I write about, which I had personal experience of as the, as the former state Homeland Security Advisor for Massachusetts, uh, was the Boston Marathon bombing. In that case, we, we tend to focus on the two brothers and why they weren't caught before, right? Why didn't we, well, how do we not stop that horror? Or, unfortunately, the three who perished at the finish line. And I instead tell the story of the 297 people with traumatic injuries, loss of a hand, a foot, uh, bodily injury, an arm, a leg. Uh, 297 people were taken to over 30 area hospitals or 30 uh, uh, regional hospitals in three different states. Uh, uh, that was because of all the planning that was done for some disruptive event at the finish line. Some of it was luck. I, I recognize that. But, but also there had been lots of training we had done in preparation for uh, actually for a bombing or for some incident that that's needed surging medical resources. And this, the number that I leave readers with is 297 people. Uh, if you made it to a hospital, you did not die. That is, that is, those are numbers that you don't get in most crises, not, not most traumatic events like uh, two bombings. And, uh, and so I tell sort of why, so that tells the story of why those investments are important. The politics of this are harder. Uh, one is because the issues 
uh, tend to be political, whether it's terrorism or uh, climate change, or even as we saw in the last couple of years, the pandemic. It's why I, I, I tried to be agnostic about the devil, because I thought, you know, th- th- that's, that's, that's another book. That's a different book. Uh, what I wanted to do was to say, I mean, everyone knows my politics, but you know, is to say, whatever the devil is, right? You can't deny that something, you know, you, so you don't want to believe in climate change, fine. But something will happen generically. And what can you do to prepare for it? I'm glad you brought up Y2K because uh, I was at Goldman at the time. I was at the various committee tables and attended some of the industry-wide meetings and meetings with regulators and meetings with computer experts. And, and it was interesting because you're absolutely right. Y2K, you know, came and left, and it was at most a minor blip. The general reaction was, oh, it never really was a threat in the beginning. It was overblown, as opposed to, you know, the countless hours and considerable sums of money that were spent to make sure it would not be a problem. And so I keep hearkening back that it is interesting just this human phenomenon. And so it almost dooms the hard-working men and women in the scientific community and government, etc., who are pointing to things that they know are going to occur. But when they don't occur immediately, it's, it's almost as though, take the, the children's fable of the boy who cried wolf. There is the character of Cassandra, given the gift of prophecy, but the curse of disbelief. I mean, part of it is, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you, and it, it's a too heavy of a lift to, to try to change the federal government or the politics of our time. But I also didn't want to be defeatist, like that will never change. And so part of what I've learned in my experiences working in both state and federal government and the private sector is, is well, you know, maybe it's just one institution, one town, one city, one family, one community, one company at a time that, that a lot of this can be done at a much more localized uh, um, capacity uh, in the absence of sort of a sweeping change on the, on the federal government. And I think not I think, I mean, I, and, and so how do you overcome the preparedness paradox? Part of it is uh, a different mindset, which is what the book is arguing for, which is that you, we, we have to now think of, of, of perpetual or consistent preparedness, that it cannot be viewed to be necessary in anticipation of a particular event, but that the disruption, and I describe what a crisis actually is, the disruption just simply has to be um, anticipated. And so uh, that the the risk calculations that we do in our fields and all the sort of, you know, is this a, you know, a low probability, high consequence event, or low probability, you know, all of that in some ways goes away. And all you're really thinking about is what's the essence of what I need to protect and what are the consequences if I don't protect it? Uh, and then focus on those, right? So you don't have to fix everything. Uh, and And I really do think that there are, you know, there are differences between, there's obviously, I mean, between, say, an emergency and a crisis. But part of it is is that agency that we were talking about earlier is is the the sense of nothing's working and frustration uh, that animates us and that we're sort of sitting here waiting for all these bad things to happen or we're dreaming of a world 
in which, you know, oh, if only those bad things didn't happen, you know, we need more this, this and this to to make it better. It's, it's just not the history shows us that is just not true. Uh, and so giving empowering people with the tools, I have a line in there. There's a whole section on sort of why do we study zombies and zombie zombie apocalypses in crisis management? And part of it is a similar to what I do in the book is you just you, rather than focusing on would this threat happen or that threat not happen, it, we really do focus on um, uh, in zombies just sort of like this sort of bad thing is happening and we don't care whether it's likely or not. And, and how would you prepare for it? And um, I talked to a, a scholar in international relations, a guy named Dan Dresner, uh, who's a professor at Tufts, who wrote a separate book on zombies and why we study zombies. And he's he read and watched all sorts of zombie TV and, and shows and novels and everything. And he said, you know, the, the problem with the zombie genre is that it assumes adaptability for the zombie, but does not give humankind credit, uh, uh, to assert agency. And so, you know, the zombies constantly changing and finding this, and the, you know, the humans are just sort of sitting there. And he, he has a great line where he says, and I quote it in the book where he says, you know, we're an awesome uh, species. We, we invented duct tape. You know, he's like, yeah, we can do things. And I thought that that was very, uh, very good way to think about it, that we're, we're not at the mercy of these, these things that we give them agency or we give them purpose, right? And for some reason, we can't have the same. My reaction to your book and, and may just be, you know, sort of how you read may, may de- there's a lot of confirmation bias, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's but, good. Okay. But I felt, I, honestly, I, I felt sort of almost like a call to arms, to be honest with you. And again, just around so many of these events that people, you know, are where that might happen, this could be a high probability, high consequential event is very often people don't know that there are things that can be done and things that have been done in the past to mitigate and ensure resiliency. And uh, I like to say, if I just to sort of build on the period of COVID, I, you know, anyone who thinks the same coming out of COVID, the two years has not been paying, as they did at the beginning, has not been paying attention. And and what was interesting, and to, to bring up, you know, there there. Many themes around the events um, concerning George Floyd and the tragedy uh, that befell, but not the least of which, and I and I've spoken about this, Juliet, is that what happened there has happened before. It's happened many times before, and and it was a little different because we're in this period of lockdown. It was different because. It was videoed, you know, because telephones are not telephones anymore. They're computers with the ability to photograph and record. And this played out. And it, it played out in, in a way, if, if there had been no video documentary from, you know, this young person who, you know, had the presence of mind, I know how this would have been reported in the police files. And I know how it likely would have you know, come out. Just so you know, my I, I work extensively with law enforcement. I'm a big supporter of the law enforcement community. But the fact of the matter is, I actually felt that an injustice had been paid over the many, many years to law enforcement because it's not as though we, we weren't aware that these things happen. 
They have happened too many times. And yet, and yet, that aspect of the book is very, very important. And yes, it's a catchy title. And yes, you go through different, you know, incidents. But this notion that there can be accountability and there can be empowerment. And I also love the notion, look, if you think about some of the great developments and innovations in our world, we haven't waited for the federal government to come up with it. Right. Right. I think that's right. I think that there's so much ingenuity at the local level. And this is not just a book about the United States. I mean, it's got um, stories from around uh, the globe. And, and one of the stories, probably everyone's favorite story, this was the excerpt in the Atlantic, uh, is the other nuclear facility down the street from Fukushima. This Once again, here's a disaster that we all know uh, and everyone is like, wait, there was another nuclear facility? Yes, it was closer to the water. It was closer to the epicenter. It did not have a radiation leak. And when you think about, you know, how can I make things less bad? Well, one is you don't have a radiation leak, right? Lots of bad things happen to the nuclear facility. You just don't want there to be a radiation leak. And I tell the story of sort of what happened at that nuclear facility that went right. And much of it came down to one guy uh, who who rejected the notion of the industry uh, that uh, that had been promising sort of perfectly safe nuclear s- safety, which was obviously not true. Uh, that had, some of that had to do with the history of Japan, obviously with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so that the the entire country. You know, the governmental apparatus said, well, if we need nuclear energy, which they did, we have to just convince people that it's safe now. Um, and he knew that wasn't true. But he also knew that uh, that success and failure were not binary, that even if something happened to the facility, you could still do a lot uh, to protect it. That other facility is still closed. It, it was it was totally damaged. Uh, but it did not have a radiation leak. And so you know, part of it was a, a particular individual who empowered his team to do things in real time, to respond to what was essentially lots of water coming in. And then, you know, down the street at Fukushima, they, they haven't learned to fail safer. They, they're calling Tokyo in the middle of this, asking what to do. You know, by then it's too late. Exactly. And um, we could share some anecdotes. And um, I happened to be at Goldman when uh, Fukushima melted down. Nobody knew, okay, what what about the people in Tokyo, in Seoul? What should people do to be prepared? But uh, absolutely, and it was not overlooked that there was another nuclear facility that did not fail. I wanted to ask you uh, whether you happen to have seen the movie Don't Look Up. Yes, of course, yes. Okay. I mean, the movie obviously is about what we call a slow roll crisis, right? So it's a, a, an allegory for climate change, although it's a meteor is far, far away. And I mean, I think it does show uh, the the importance of reliable and consistent information. I think that one of the challenges we have now, obviously, is just a apparatus that is into disinformation and how do you overcome it? I do have to say... Just to, you know, end on a high note rather than the gloom and doom and the end of mankind, you know, despite everything, everything that has gone wrong, a million dead and an entire apparatus committed to, as I say, to be pro-COVID, 75%, now it's over 75% of eligible Americans um, are vaccinated. And that's not 100. um, And that's with a lot of uphill climbing. 
but it's not 50-50. And I always want to, I always tell my students to remind them that whatever it sounds like on cable and in the news, the American public, you know, still has a little, still has got something worth fighting for, I hope. I agree. I believe that. <laughs> I, I, I embrace you. the optimism and obviously Good. part of the business is um, of the media and social media. If it bleeds, it reads and Yeah, exactly. And And that's so funny because like that is actually that's that's the lens I wanted to move the reader from. Like you can get all the crappy, horrible, awful news. Let me tell you sort of what worked. Right. Like the Suez Canal or the the other Fukushima facility, because everyone else is doing what what did you know, what, what didn't work. Julia, thanks for spending Thank so valuable much. time and the insight. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank and you. Look forward to the continuing uh, conversation. I do too. Well, best to you, and thank you so much for this. Julia Kayem is the author of The Devil Never Sleeps Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. She's also a senior lecturer in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a disaster expert. You can find a link to her bio and her book at our podcasting page. Rain offers risk intelligence solutions to more than 400 leading corporations, government agencies, and academic institutions. Those one and a half million members turn to Rain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can learn how Rain can power your business to success at rainnetwork.com. That's R A N E network.com. Thanks for listening.